0: Good morning. It is Tuesday the 6th of September 2022. I'm here in the UK Column Studio and I'm delighted to be joined by Sandy Adams today. Now I've known Sandy for a long time, a long time, and uh, in that time she's been doing some really great work researching, well initially Agenda 21, uh, but that uh, transformed, I'm going to use that word deliberately, transformed into Agenda 2030. So we're going to have a very interesting interview today. And Sandy, welcome to the UK Column Studio.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Okay, right. Well, we've got a huge subject. And uh, you have done a huge amount of research, you've given me for today a really comprehensive package of slides and we're going to choose some of those to emphasize what we're talking about but first of all for for the audience as a whole just give us a little bit of background about yourself really who are you what have you done in your life and how did you go from being a normal person let's use that expression how did you go from being a normal person to a deep researcher in all matters to do with agenda twenty-one and twenty thirty?
1: Well, it, it it's interesting. My journey really started. I mean, I started off my life um at art school. I was I was really into uh, I was very creative, and I went and studied set design, um, and I became a set designer in the theatre, and I worked at the Old Vic and the National Theatre, and uh, loved loved working in theatre, it was very arty, it was uh, lovely. Um, and then, um, as my life progressed, I found myself in in television a little bit, and film, and uh music videos and stuff. But when I, I had my children, I, you know, it's the same thing. You, you get suffered with a mortgage. You have to earn money to keep your family. And I migrated, sadly, into corporate live events. And that's where my big awakening came, because I started working with all the, you know, uh, designing um, live events for people like Google, um, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, Microsoft. Um, and I, I encountered these people. And I had this almost visceral, uh, you know, sort of aversion to what I was doing. Um, and it really came to me when I was working for Microsoft because I did actually meet Bill Gates once when he was with Microsoft. And he was creating um, infrastructure to go into the home and, and 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 our world. And I had to create a, um, a whole... If you like an experience, it was a it was a, a walk through experience in Chelsea, and it was called Microsoft Life, and it was it was ha- bringing all this technology into. Um, I had to create a a, a London Square it was called london it was called microsoft life and i was a designer on it and i had to put all the techie guys came and put all the infrastructure in and i had to create a a, an intelligent cafe an intelligent business an intelligent um uh, uh there was vehicles in the square that were intelligent all this technology had gone into it and trevor mcdonald came and interviewed bill gates on the in the in the home they had, we had an intelligent home as well and in, interviewed him on the sofa uh, about this 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 whole um installation that would actually become a reality and that's when i started thinking this is awful. This is not. This is not the way. I, do, I could somehow see the future and how far it might go. Um, and then I, I worked for Google, and they were doing very, very strange things. And I met Eric Schmidt. Didn't like him. I met him in a bar once uh, on a job in Dublin, and you know he was bragging about having you know, uh, breakfast with George Bush every week, he and Jared Cohen. And I just thought, these people, and they're very entitled, and I, I had to get out of it. And I, I had such an aversion to the work I was doing. I simply, um, I had a bit of a, a breakthrough, breakdown, whatever you want to call it. I decided I didn't want to work in that industry anymore. And it caused the breakup of my marriage. It caused um, us to... Uh, Me to to flee to the West Country where I started really researching Agenda 21 and then saw it in action when the levels flooded in um, 2014 and then I I started doing talks on it and really went deep into Agenda 21 and at that point I thought it was all to do with climate change and that they would bring in all the all this draconian all these draconian measures through climate change by making us feel guilty about the planet Um, didn't realize it would go way beyond that and that we'd
0: end up in the metaverse. My goodness you've given us some fascinating stuff there just i got to ask so what did you think of bill gates
1: i um it was very very strange he was he was um he was chauffeured in from uh he was chauffeured into chelsea from battersea he had helicoptered from uh i suppose Heathrow, and he was there all day uh, because he was doing these interviews uh with the bbc um and we had to meet him and i I had to. I shook his hand, and it was clammy. I, I got an absolute awful feeling about him. I don't know. I, that's that's all I can say is I didn't like him, and he was very odd. He didn't eat anything all day. That we had lots of PAS, you know, attending to all his needs, and all he wanted was crisps and Coca Cola, and it was very odd. Um, it was right. yeah,
0: very strange. Wow. And yeah. just just re- <laughs> remind me, what date was that, roughly?
1: That, was. I'm trying to remember now. Microsoft Life must have been around 2003 or four. I can't remember. Um, it was early 2000s. It was early 2000s. It's all a bit of a blur now. I've still got all the pictures of what I did. You know, the you know the um, the installation and how we we took over a, a, an old school and turned it into this installation. It was a,
0: it was a school in Chelsea when you talk about the intelligent set. So you you mentioned an intelligent uh, home and a cafe and intelligent vehicles. Um, What did that mean? What were you actually demonstrating to the public under the label of intelligent?
1: Um, Well, we prior to to microsoft life we'd done microsoft home which was which he didn't come to um that was in notting hill when we took over a big house and it was all it, it was it was simple things like on the walls they had digi frames where you know your 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 pictures changed on a, on a circuit you had an intelligent fridge that told you when you were running out of things you had um intelligent heating that would come on as you're driving home, you could run yourself a bath and, and stuff like it It was all things that sounded really nice, you know, and s- simplified your life. Um, it was, it was just all that techie stuff coming into the home. Um, things that the fridge would tell you if you're running out of food or, or would make a list for you. And it was all, uh, you know, sort of a, an intelligent hub that was in in the house, um, and it, then it progressed to you know the life, the Microsoft life, which is what we created in Chelsea. So in the cafe, you had Digiframes; everything was digitalized. You had uh, no cash; it was all digitalized. You know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the and there was an intelligent business that happened to be a printer. Um, I was dealing with the design, so I didn't really get into all the techie stuff. To be honest, I wasn't really interested in it at that point. But I could see uh, that, and, and obviously in the in the in the square, you had vehicles that had sat nav, which to us at that point was unbelievable that you would have sat nav, um, and you'd have a car that was intelligent that would be telling you what it needed and what, you know, it would talk to you, stuff like that. So it was, yeah, it was, a, it was quite, for, for that time, it was, it was because really the, the, the real sort of, if you like, the internet had only come in in the 90s and went in the early 2000s. And this technology seemed unbelievable um, now, at is, the time.
0: Isn't that fantastic? And of course, you're now in the position you can look back <laughs> Uh, you can see what's around you now and you can look back and of course if we just take one of those things the intelligent vehicles they are now testing driverless cars and driverless uh, lorries and i believe in america they are also testing um linked lorries so it's not just one driverless vehicle it's it's towing several tra- trailers like a road train and these are happening and of course, they can only happen with the use of GPS or um, satnav. Uh, but of course, they're also putting out microwave transmissions because the vehicle has got to know its distance from everything around it. So there's there's quite a lot of um, really interesting and I would say worrying techie stuff around that. But isn't that a mm-hmm. fantastic start? You've actually shaken the hand of uh, of sure. Mr. Mr. Bill Gates, and it, it didn't give you a good feeling. Yeah. So you, you moved on and you started research. Now, one of the things that I remember you telling me probably several years ago was about the fact that you paid to get a copy of one of the UN's first books about all things to do with Agenda 2021, 20, uh, 20, was it? and yes. Uh, You told me how many pages it had. And this was one of the things that impressed me about your research was that you didn't mess around. You got the source document from the UN and it was extremely fat. Maybe you can remember how many pages it had.
1: (laughs) This is it. Okay. (laughs) It's huge. Uh, It's called the Global Biodiversity Assessment and it has well over a thousand pages. and it it really was, um it, it was the blueprint, it, it, it was the action plan of Agenda 21. I mean, Agenda 21 is just, this is the plan, you know, and this is available on their website. Um, but the global diversity assessment, I had to really, really look for because they'd taken it out of print. And I bought it on Amazon, easily, a good well, when I saw you, it must have been over 10 years ago, I don't know. But I bought it then because I realised how rare it would become. You cannot get it now. I paid £50, pounds, which 10 years ago was quite a lot of money for, to buy a research document. And I thought, oh, I'm, you know, and also i did impoverish myself by, by running away to the West Country and, and becoming a, a sort of truther. But um, I, you know, it, it, i don't got i mean i i can't get a copy of this now i don't know whether anyone else can this came from the united states i got it on abe i think it was abe books at the time and really it it goes into everything it goes into the financialization of nature it talks about what what we now call smart cities, which in this they call human settlement zones, which is even more dystopian. Um, and they talk about how you will have the people living in the human settlement zones, and the corridors in between that will be just be federal and military access. And that this is all because we have destroyed the planet. We awful human beings have. Uh, we don't deserve to be in nature. We have to be corralled into. Urban human settlement zones. So that was the big, you know, and it's it's literally categorizes, and it's it's a blueprint of how to manage every single resource on the planet. That's exactly what this document is all. I mean, I call it a document. This huge tome is all about. So it's um, and and the the, I believe that you cannot get hold of this. I don't know. I've I've tried, and I can't get hold of another copy. And it, it would seem that the UN have have now just they they don't acknowledge that it exists anymore, because I think it's there's much information in it. Yeah,
0: Uh, but the key bit there, Sandy, is that you are sitting talking to me with the evidential document sitting on the table beside you. And this this is so important because we are putting out information, obviously, to our viewers and listeners. Uh, They want to know that what what we what you are talking about is factual and you can do no better than say, here at my right hand side I have their own document and this is this is what it says very interesting that you're you're saying you're finding it difficult to to uh, get another copy or see where you can get another copy Um, but this seems to happen so often with these documents that once people discover them they seem to drift off the internet and I I can reinforce that with uh, The example of a particular book that that I have a copy of, of course, I'm going to embarrass myself now by not exactly remembering the name of it, but it was written by three university professors and it's all about the use of applied behavioral psychology in the UK government. Very detailed document, lots of footnotes, very well written, an amazing book. I bought it for about £16 and now I can't find it on, um, I can't find it on Amazon anymore. I can't find it on the internet. It seems to have disappeared. And I think it's disappeared because actually, unwittingly, those university professors were actually exposing something which they weren't supposed to expose, which was, I, I used the, the word malicious when I say this, malicious applied psychology. But just to reinforce what you've told us, that you, you think the book is disappeared. So you, I know, got reading that book, and you were astonished at what you started to read. And mm-hmm. correct me if I, my memory is wrong here, because it was quite some time ago. But you were also saying that as you read into it, you found that what it was describing became more and more horrific, because it indicated that there was going to be an astonishing level of control. Over every aspect of our lives, so this is some document.
1: Yes, I mean it. it really went into uh, just about every area. I mean, uh, it was it was a plan really to control every resource, um, whether it be sea, uh, land, uh, trees, animals. Literally, it was an inventory and a control um, directory. On, on how they were going to roll this whole thing out and right. um, and and, and, and it, you know now you realize how it's gone beyond that you know and and it's 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 the whole AI thing has come into it so it's you know from those early days uh, you know I didn't realize that and it's quite astonishing how it's all linking up now to this bigger agenda which has been there for eons but we just didn't know about it
0: yeah. yes. And the fact that the the document is so thick and so comprehensive, you're saying over a thousand pages means that there was a huge amount of work uh, that went into bringing that information together in in the book. And I, Mm -hmm. I remember you commenting to me about this, that it must have taken a vast team of analysts and people handling data and consultants in order to have done the research in the separate areas and then ultimately to bring it together into such a huge a huge tome as you've described it this was a massive undertaking in even producing the book that you've got beside you
1: yes i mean if if you um look at the fact that the the Agenda 21 was launched at the Earth Summit in 1992, and this was published in 1997. So um, so it took five, you know, it, the, maybe they, they, they just took five years to compile this. But to me, it looks like a massive amount of work. I think they were working on that way before then. Um, and, you know, it's a bit like, the, you know, the whole Great Reset thing. Suddenly, wham, it's there, COVID-19, the Great Reset. They planned it, you know, it didn't just appear out of nowhere. And in this, in, this, in the Global Diversity Assessment, they actually say, and I can't remember which page it is, but I will I'll, I'll try and get it up. Um, they say it's a 200-year agenda. 200 years so they said this plan will take 200 years to literally, you know, it will it, be ongoing for, two, for the next 200 years. And I, I thought, well, that's ridiculous that they're looking that far ahead. You know, this is almost not a human agenda, if you like. It's it's it's, it's inter you know inter intergenerational, uh, and this is the way these people work. Unbelievably, this is the way they work.
0: Sandy, that that's quite a statement quite an observation isn't it that if you if you have people who are looking they're so confident they can create a plan that's going to go 200 years into the future these are obviously minds that are working very very differently to people who get up in the morning and think that they've got to go to work and they've got to earn some money to look after their families and probably a future event is that there's going to be a family birthday or there's going to be a holiday with friends and family that's what the average person thinks about to enjoy their life but these people um, are thinking about a plan to change and control the whole of the planet and the whole of society and they can they are sure assured enough they're arrogant enough to say we we can do this over 200 years and I'll just throw this little one in. Is that a human mind creating that agenda or is there something a bit darker?
1: Well, you know, the way things are going, I, I, if you had asked me, you know, when when we used to you know talk about this over 10 years ago, if you'd asked me then, um, I would have said it's a human agenda. It's just a bunch of very, very entitled people, you know, billionaires, cabal, whatever you want to call it, just playing God. But now I'm just wondering what is happening because it is a, it's so anti-human and anti-nature. Who are, the, who are these people? Who are they? And yeah. I have to question whether they're entirely with us as human beings.
0: Yeah. They can't that's, be. They can't mm-hmm. be. No, I think that's a very astute statement. Well, I thought we'd, we would uh, move on to having a little look at the UN because this, this whole um, plan stems at least from the UN as an organisation, people behind it, but from the UN, and a lot of people think that the UN is such a a wonderful organisation because, of course, there it's for sort of peace and to get human beings working and cooperating together to bring the nations together to work uh, work alongside each other. So the image that the UN sells is is a very positive one. Um, here you've labelled it the unaccountable United Nations, and uh, yes, tell tell us why you are more suspicious of the UN.
1: Um, they 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 have a disclaimer on their website which literally um, makes them totally unaccountable, and and they they say you know we can move cu- gold and currency around the world um, and. Uh, you know on un, with unlimited you know sort of with without restriction and um and they they can they can bring prosecution to any corporation or individual but you cannot prosecute the united nations and they are you know uh, the, the more you look at what the united nations get up to when they're supposedly peacekeeping and we know that they and the wef and all the the nefarious groups that they are aligned to um, are really in control of of our destiny and we didn't elect them we didn't elect any of these people so they are they're they're acting in a totally unaccountable way
0: and that's an interesting statement what immediately comes to my mind is that it mimics the situation with the world banking system, because if we take the Bank of International Settlements, which clearly holds immense power as being the uh, the controlling organization for the whole of the world's banking system, um they are also unaccountable. So uh they are a there in Switzerland, but you you can't go on the property, you can't call them to account. Um I just throw that in because of course if you have a 200 year plan you're going to need money to carry it out and my mind a little bit of common sense says well the next people who've got to be alongside them are the bankers now we we haven't got time today to uh head off in that little direction but i just thought i'd throw it in to to get our viewers and listeners thinking but if you get inside the un and um uh, the, the image we're just about to bring up on screen is a very interesting one. Here we go. This is the prayer room. I have also seen this image and I was very surprised the first time I saw it and I did not get a good feeling about it. Um, yeah. You obviously have pulled this this image out because you think it's strange. What, what do you think about the style of the UN's prayer room?
1: Well, it, uh, you know, it, the stone in the middle um, is is made of, of magnetite. It was a gift from Sweden in, uh, I don't know when, I think in probably the 70s. And magnetite is associated with Saturn. It's quite saturnic. Um, and it weighs 6.66 tons, apparently, which is quite interesting. But it... it they, the the way they describe it, because I thought, well, what's their take on it? Because to me, that is not a prayer room. That is, it almost looks a bit like the, the stone at the hatch, you know, and I, I don't quite know what that's all about either. But this, it was, um, they say, we may see it as an altar, empty, not because there is no God, not that it is an altar to an unknown God, but that it is dedicated to the God whom man worships in many forms um so really it's it's almost like a pantheistic altar you know it's it's it can be whatever it can be a you can you can worship lucifer satan in there you can worship you know the man down the road you can you know you can worship anything there which isn't really i mean i it it's, it looks it looks very sparse and the fact that you are you're they have that all that stone there and it it is saturnic is very, very strange. I I don't like it at all. It's a very bad feeling.
0: It's when when you look into the image, um, you look in there, there is something, something oppressive about it, to my mind, something, I don't get a warm feeling about looking at a a, a black um, stone like that. But of course, Mm -hmm. the other thing that many people don't know is the UN, uh, certainly in its early days, also used to run the lucifer publishing company and uh, mm. not surprisingly you've highlighted this tell tell us a bit about what you discovered in relation to this
1: basically it's it's um the lucifer trust was set up now when was it set up i think it was 1920s i did oh yeah here we go it's um the lucifer trust was 1922 um it works with the UN, and it was formerly the Lucifer Trust in 1921. They changed it because they obviously, you know, you can't call something the Lucifer Trust. So they changed it to the Lucis Trust, and um, it's it, it really is um, a way that a way of, of of I think what they what they they do is that they've got. They publish all their their stuff through through the Lucis Trust. And it's got it it is very um oh, how can I put it? I mean, when you listen to somebody like David Spangler, who was the United Nations director of Planetary Initiative, and I find that all very odd. Uh, this was quite a while ago, he said, no one will will enter the new world order unless he or she will make a pledge to worship Lucifer. No one will enter the new age unless he will take a Luciferian initiation. And when you see what is going on right now, you realize that it is is a, a very dark, satanic, Luciferian, whatever you want to call it, agenda led by the United Nations. And there's no there's no doubt whatsoever in my mind what they're up to. They're, they're, it's, it's godless. It's 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 plain. Well, I, it's diabolical. What's going on is diabolical. Yeah, that's all I can yeah. say. Yeah,
0: and uh, I'm very interesting that we're having the interview today. But on, on Sunday we were uh, assisting with a day of talks for Alternative View, and it it was just fascinating that the speakers were all talking about various agendas and political events, uh, medical events, um, uh, some of it quite deeply economic. Uh, So different subjects, different speakers, but they were all saying that they were perceiving an undertone of policies that were coming, being enacted by governments around the world, sometimes those policies are clearly pan global policies because the same country adopts the same policy, but they they regarded the policies as being very dark and I'll say lacking human kindness. And so Mm. I think this is quite important to point out that actually there are a lot of questions to be asked exactly about what the UN is and and uh whether we should trust it and you've produced here a, a timeline of globalist organizations which we can uh, just have a look on so we've got the rockefeller foundation we've got the, the council on foreign relations so you started out with uh, rockefeller in 1913 you have got the mm. Lucis trust here 1922 uh formerly the lucifer trust 1921 Rockefeller Brothers Fund, United Nations, 1948, the Club of Rome, World Economic Forum. Now that's certainly come to prominence in recent years, but you've also got the Trilateral Commission. So, what, what's your take on these? Uh, I nearly said nefarious groups, but let's just call them <laughs> groups at the moment.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think the basically, in my in my view. Everything has been born from the Rockefeller Foundation in, in 1913. And 1913 was quite a key time, really. Um, you know, if, if, if anybody's ever read The Creature from Jekyll Island, and I would honestly get, you know, I, w- I would say if anybody really wants to know, you know, what happened around that time with the Federal Reserve and, and the banking system, it's really, it's all about money, Um, And the Rockefeller Foundation really gave birth to the Council on Foreign Relations, you know, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the United Nations, the Club of Rome, um, the World Economic Forum and the Trilateral Commission. And, you know, I I would imagine the Company of 300, all of those are under that umbrella. And they're very clever at, at, at setting up all these branches and so that they, it never really, that you know, it never really traces back to them. But from my research, it all comes from the Rockefeller Foundation,
0: right? And and of course, it, you you have um, you have started research these particular areas because your interest was triggered from that original big fat document. So I'm, I'm yes. just for the audience to to um, keep them. Just moving along the little path as we go through this discussion is that you start off looking at a plan that plan is unbelievable because of its size and scope and the fact it's going to take 200 years and then you ask probably a very simple question well who created this lot and that's led you through these these organizations and i would say for our audience uh, these are organisations which are largely hidden in plain sight because you can put any of those names into uh, the search engine and you will come up with information. Uh, you, you probably come up with information about the organisation and when it was formed. You will usually come up with names of people who are involved with the organisations. Not always, but usually you will. But then you're left with a question well, who are these people and what gives them the power to come together to decide how the world should be in the future? That's how I look at it. I don't know whether you'd agree mm-hmm. with that, Sandy.
1: No, abs- absolutely. No, I mean, the, these people are um, highly entitled. They, they feel that, they, uh, that, that, that human beings really are useless eaters. They've said that. You know, there was an amazing whistleblower a guy called George Hunt at the original um, Earth Summit. And he was there. He was a, a businessman and he was there. Um, to, his son had died and he was there to prom- promote environmentalism because that's what his son worked in. And he went and he he uh, he witnessed um, bankers calling us cadden fodder. You know, and it's all on the web. If you If you look for, you know, I think it's George Hunt whistleblower at the unsed conference because they also called it the unsed conference unced um and and he, he he explains and he spent all of his life trying to explain that this the earth summit was a really bad thing they put it over as something wonderful to save the planet it wasn't it was all about the control of the human being and everything on the earth yeah
0: right that that's quite a scope isn't it well, we are yeah. we are going to look in in a little bit of detail at the, the uh, UN's Agenda 21 2030 itself. But before we do that, since we've covered some of these other organisations, the World Economic Forum, uh, trilateral yeah. com- commission, the Club of Rome, um, you've got some other documents here which show the uh, at least the involvement of these organisations in the general theme around agenda 21 so the first one we've got on the screen here is the first global revolution a report by the council of the club of rome um we put that alongside agenda uh, summit agenda 21 mm-hmm. but what what can you tell us about the um this report by the club of rome
1: well Interesting, this was the last club. There's three main um, Club of Rome reports that are really the bones of Agenda 21, you know, the Earth Summit document. Um, And uh, working backwards, this this was the one that was uh, published just before the Earth Summit in 1991. And it was written by <laughs> Alexander, Alexander Schneider and uh, Alexander King and Bertrand Schneider. And they worked in the Club of Rome, which was really a A crisis think tank. It was the way they could create a crisis that would have to be overcome by a global response, and um, really, it was all about trying to find a a crisis that would unite unite humanity under one umbrella. And they decided that climate change, or what they called then global warming, would fit the bill. And it it is actually written in here that um, you know they, they 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 were looking for an enemy to unite humanity, because basically the Cold War was over. All the world wars were over. The war had just come down in 1989. And they thought, what well, you know, bankers need enemies, you know, in order to make money. Um, and so the need, they actually said the need for enemies seems to be common, a common historical factor. States have striven to overcome domestic failure and internal contradictions by designating external enemies. Um, when things become too difficult at home, divert attention by adventure abroad, bring the divided nation together to face an outside enemy. So this, that's on page 108, but then on a page 115, and I have it here, um, they say, the common enemy of humanity is man. So they made us the enemy. Uh, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. Great. In their totality and in their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which demands the solidarity of all people. All these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it's only through changed attitudes and behaviour that they can be overcome. The real Enemy then is humanity itself, and that is what they've done. They've they've made us the enemy of of the whole world, um, and we're not. You know they are, but they've de- designated us as the enemy, and identified us as the enemy, and have guilt tripped at the Earth Summit. They guilt tripped 178 leaders of countries to sign up to Agenda 21 at the Earth Summit. I mean unbelievable that's exactly what they did to try and pull humanity together under a common threat and to make us believe that it was our fault that that this has all happened
0: uh, sandy biblical. you've done a brilliant job there again because of course you, you've you've used the source document and you're quoting from the club of rome itself as to what the intention was so there's no ifs and buts about this that th- that is what they said And ultimately, you can then see the policy following through. Um, You said they and of course, this is a critical thing. Are you able to tell us any more about who the they in the Club of Rome is?
1: Well, you know, if if you look at the Club of Rome, I don't know whether they publish. Um, obviously, you've got you've got world leaders. You've got, you know, people like um, Zbigniew Brzezinski, all the movers and shakers that were all behind, all in the World Economic Forum. All of these people are the same. They 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 all belong to the same club, if you like. It is a club. You know, the Club of Rome is a club. And you only get invited into the Club of Rome if you actually are, you know, for this agenda. And the Club of Rome, has been it was was formed by the United Nations. Uh, It it actually is is a, it was used by the United Nations to create the documents that would then become Agenda 21. So they they use world leaders, all sorts of people are in the Club of Rome. Um, And I think you could look up, you you know, people in the Club of Rome, but most of them were the people at the Earth Summit. Um, and you know people like Maurice Strong, um, Al Gore. You know all those people that that pulled this whole thing together.
0: Yeah, and those people, the people in the Club of Rome, have got immense power. If they are, I'm going to say they're in the background, but they're able to put their finger on world leaders, encourage them, bring them forward in order to get involved and ultimately join and promote their agenda. So these figures in the background, some of them are named, but they clearly have immense power because they appear to be moving the political leaders to their will, rather than the Mm. elected political leaders using other people to deliver the will of the people. Uh, It's got to be Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum who jumps into my mind at the moment because that man seems to have unbelievable power at directing what the political leaders of nation states are going to do and get involved in and say.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Um, You you know, they they all seemed to also go through a lot of these these people that are the movers and shakers of this whole agenda right now. um, And I don't know whether we'll get onto that later. They all seemed to have... Gone through this um, this thing, this kind of education, if you like, at Columbia University, which is a hotbed of technocratic thinking. And um, I, I I don't know whether you 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 looked at my stuff, but you know you've got a whole raft of technocracy. Um, think, you know, technocratic thinking that started off in the 1930s, which has been brought forward. And all those people, you know, George Soros, um, Amitai Etzioni, the communitarian, um, the man that that really put forward the communitarian agenda, um, Klaus Schwab, um, all of these people, even, even, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Oh, Elon Musk's grandfather was, they were all on this technocratic mission from columbia university
0: yes Uh, and and once we start to be able to name individuals and have a look into their background it's fascinating how the the web spreads the network spreads let's bring up these two on screen because you you'd sent over to me our common future the world commission on environment and development and also limits to growth um so the one on the right, The Limits to Growth, is another report of the Club of Rome. Um, what can you tell us about the, these two?
1: Well, this, this covered, I mean, if, if you think that, that really the, the Earth Summit was, was the main challenges there were population, um, financial, uh, shifting finance, financial power across the globe and, and obviously climate you know, uh, what they called then global warming. Um, the Limits to Growth was firmly about um, uh, the fact that, in their view, uh, there, are, there are no finite, res- you know, the, the resources are finite and that there's not enough resources to go around. It was written in 1971. So really, there was a massive push at that point to put into the psyche of, of the people that there's not enough to go around. that that, that there isn't an abundant planet and that we would have to depopulate in some way using at that point they were talking about you know uh, health uh, reproductive health you know the pill all that sort of thing they were they were bringing that into the psyche of contraception and limiting people you know having children and uh, there was a lot of that thinking going around them. There was a guy called Paul Ehrlich, who wrote a book at the same time called The Population Bomb, making wild predictions, again, computer-modeled predictions, about how, um you know, by, by 1980, we wouldn't have enough to, um, food to feed the anybody on the planet and that we had to do something about population. So all of this was going around in the globalists' heads then in 1971. And so they've they've pushed all of that agenda. And of course, the population bomb never exploded. Um, Those computer models were flawed, obviously, like all computer models are. That's why we're in the mess we're in now, because everything's been put onto computer models and we know they don't work, but they were doing it then. And this was clearly about, you know, there's not enough to go round. That's what that book was about, that Club of Rome report was about. And something must be done. Um, right. And behind the scenes, the whole depopulation agenda has been working, but they haven't been as vocal about it, as we know. Yes.
0: yes. And yeah. you earlier, earlier you, you, you indicated that in putting forward the agenda, it was very much a fear agenda. Uh, it was based on fear we have to do this because climate change or there's going to be too many people in the world and we won't be able to feed ourselves so the undertone of the agenda that they were pushing was fear-based yeah exactly
1: As as it is now and as it as it will continue to be you know they're just trying to you know they feed on fear they love us being fearful
0: Yes, because that that give the, the the state of anxiety then makes it easier to control people, and they become yeah. more susceptible to suggested policy. Uh, and uh, at the moment, uh, it's fascinating that we've now got qualified professionals, so psychologists, psychotherapists, uh, even some psychiatrists, who are now starting to look at political use of applied psychology and say this is wrong. This is this is harming people as opposed to helping them. So we yeah. we really have moved into Agenda 21's future, and you've given us a, a fa- fantastic lead into this uh, this Agenda 21, which was the the first um, the first agenda. And if I pop these up on the screen, you did mention these earlier, but let's recap on them because. Uh, what are they looking at in the policy? Well, everything: all land, water, minerals, construction, means of production, plants, animals, and en- education, energy, information, human beings, control of all religious doctrine, and the last two should really grab people's attention. That every human being is to be controlled. Mm.
1: Okay. Absolutely.
0: And um, this is Morris Strong. So you've selected him as one individual to talk about. Uh, But uh, what what made you choose Morris Strong out of all the people you could have?
1: Um, Mainly because he was the grandfather of Agenda 21. He 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 really got it going. Um, uh, He was uh, secretary general of of the um, uh, the United Nations um, at the time in 1992 and, and before, and he's quite an interesting character because he um, he he worked for the Rockefellers for many years. Um, he was an oil billionaire himself, um, and he he's been involved in all sorts of crime. I mean, he was involved in the oil for food scandal with Adnan Khashoggi in um, in when 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 they were there was that that awful oil for food thing going on um and he was exiled to china um because he was going to be put in prison in the us so he went to live in china and he loved china his sister lived with chairman Mao, and he was uh, he was totally sold on on the way the chinese social credit system would work and he he believed that that was the the way forward um you know with with human beings and that they, they had to be managed and that that all the resources then would be managed and there'd be enough to go round um but he uh he 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 he's uh, he's not an honest man i mean when he was in in um in china he set up a car company a car manufacturing company with george soros called cherry c h r e y and uh they were they were shipping carbon unfriendly cars to America to sell. So he, he'd he do anything for money. He's just like all the rest of them. It's just a means of control. And to be one of the elite, you know, to, to be a global elite uh, who will actually control everything. And it's a very different story for the rest of us. So he's, he's not somebody to be trusted. And he set up the whole Earth Summit um, he employed. I mean, obviously, at the Earth Summit there was David Rockefeller, there was um, uh, there was the uh, Edmund de Rothschild was there. The, the these are all the movers and shakers of, of the United Nations. These people are all, all billionaires, by the way. And when they realised that they could actually convince 178 countries to sign up to this. You know, they were chinking their glasses on yachts in Rio de Janeiro Harbour, saying, yeah, we did it, we did it, we got the whole world to sign up to Agenda 21. So basically, you know, we're in control now. Um, and you know, Prince Charles was there on Britannia. They were all chinking, chinking their champagne glasses. I mean it's it's quite hideous really, but that's he is the grandfather of Agenda 21. Yeah. And he he also wanted to bring in a new world religion and he worked on that. He had a big ranch um, in America called the Baca Ranch and he invited sort of world uh, uh, religious leaders to come to try and suss out kind of which religion would be the best religion for the world. Um, And, you know, the thought that people couldn't have a choice is unbelievable. But there you are. That's the kind of person he is.
0: And I, Add to that straight away, of course, Prince Charles was was a key figure in um, in saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to defend Christianity in the uh, UK. I'm going to become leader of the faiths. But of course, what many people didn't realise was his involvement in this kind of um, globalist policy where they were planning to effectively create a one world religion. So we've got a really poisonous mix developing, haven't we, because we've got a very powerful policy uh, to change the whole world. We can now see as the years gone by that many of the strands of that policy have started to come to fruition. Uh, We've mentioned the intelligent vehicles, but of course, we've now got the idea of chipping people in order to allow them to have access to cashless bank accounts by... Their finger or their wrist or the back of their hand, whatever it is. Um, And uh, we've seen with the COVID pandemic, uh, the government using policies to really control people, whether you can come out of your house or not, who you can have in your house, whether you can socialise with people and which people you can socialise with. So um, I think that a lot of people need to have a good hard look at the COVID-19 and the lockdown policies against the background of what you're talking about here with the Agenda 2030 program, because I Mm. I think the control over society that we've experienced in the last two years seems to fit uncannily well with where Agenda 2030 wanted to go. Mm. Um, You you put down some uh, points, key points of what Agenda 21 uh sought to achieve. Would you like, if you can see those on screen, would you like to just take us through those? And then we've got a we've got a summary, haven't we, of the key areas?
1: Um, yes, I mean it's top-down global governance, really. It's um and and what they they aim to do is is to, to bring everybody into concentrated urban areas um or human settlement zones near train lines. And as we know, Uh, Boris Johnson even said this morning when he was his resignation speech that they're investing in these high-speed train lines you know in between cities and it is a kind of you know I, I don't want to liken it to the Hunger Games but it is a bit like that you've got these key cities that are smart cities and you know the train lines link them up and so it's it's a bit like you know, a a Hunger Game situation where if Bush came to shove, you could be locked into your city. Uh, You don't need to leave. Everything's there. And you only get there because there's no cars, there's no planes in their eyes, this is their future, not ours, but um, that, you know, they they want to shut every airport by 2030. I don't think that can happen, but it might, you know, they'll do everything they can to make it happen and to get rid of cars. So they don't want any cars or air travel. Um, Every human action surveilled and carbon taxed. You know, that's where we get the surveillance capitalism coming in. And I didn't realise initially when I started researching this that it was all going to be linked up with the monetary system, with the digital ID. In those days, you know, when I first started researching this, I had no idea, but it's suddenly the, the veil is being lifted over and over again as, as this progresses. And you realize that surveillance capitalism is 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 happening. You know, they're they're looking at all your data, and all of that will be linked to whether you can access your money. Uh, if if you, if you if you if you if you don't go along with the agenda, you can be sanctioned. All of that. So every human action is surveilled and carbon taxed. They've got the carbon taxing going as well. So you have an allotted amount of carbon credits, and once those are gone, those are gone. If you've if you've if you've you know switched your heating on too much, or if you've done you know eaten too much meat one week, or if you've eaten too much sugar, whatever it might be, whatever they feel that they, they can sanction you on, they will. Um, and, you know, the concentration of wealth and power goes to the su- surveillance state. You know, it's it's you are kept in poverty. Uh, you won't uh, own and anything. and you'll
0: Yeah, uh, we can bring in China again here because, of course, this this um, social credit and locking everybody into the state. You've got to behave yourself. You mustn't say the wrong things, uh, because if you're naughty or you say the wrong things, then you're going to lose credits. And that is going to affect what you can do in your life so it for me it's easy to see how mr strong got very excited with what was happening in china because in china amongst a vast population um, it was being demonstrated how you could exert control over each individual by this system and of course as we've witnessed more of the um, artificial intelligence the high technology coming in, it's becoming easier to see how this can impact on each and every individual, even if you're ultimately dealing with billions of people. Mm. So Club of Rome, we'll just mention again, because you've got a little uh, paragraph here, which was, which was an overview. Uh, Let's read it out for listeners. The Club of Rome is a global think tank that deals with crisis creation and response and international and political issues. Founded in 1968 at the Academy del Legacy, if I pronounce that correctly, Rome, by Olio Pecci, or- Oh, actually, that's a typo, it's Aurelio Pecci. Sorry,
1: that's a typo. Aurelio
0: Aurelio
1: Pecci.
0: Pecci, an Italian industrialist. The Council of Rome, sorry, the Club of Rome, describes itself as a group of world citizens sharing a common concern for the future uh, future of humanity. Now, I've started laughing there because I've got so used to the fact that when you go into these organizations, they are so good. They're just ordinary people. They're ordinary citizens of the world. They've got a bit of an idea. They've come together with a common purpose. Trust us. We're independent. We're going to change your world for the better. I'm sorry to be really cynical there, but that's how I always see it. And I haven't been disappointed with the Club of Rome. Am I being unfair?
1: No, no, you've every every right to be cynical because everything that they push out, they say is for the greater good. It's for your good, it's for your benefit. And the proof is in the pudding. When you look at the dystopian future that they have in mind for us, we know that they are not good. It's not good at all. They just are out for their own backs. And we can just go to hell in a handbasket. They don't care about us at all. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And um, well, here we've we've got the UN, but you've brought in the Pope alongside the uh, UN (laughs) uh, image. And uh, what is all this about? Where does the Pope fit into this?
1: Well, it's it's interesting, you know, he (sighs) that the Vatican is so enmeshed in all of this. Uh, you know, it's my belief that the Vatican is not godly at all. I'm sorry I'm going to upset a lot of Catholics by saying that, and I'm sorry about that. But from what I've, from my research and for how the Pope has got totally embroiled with the United Nations in uh, the whole whole Agenda 2030, unless he's very stupid, which I don't think he is, uh, Pope Francis really got totally involved with it and backed it. Um, And it it is interesting that the, the Vatican called in all their assets last week, Um, It's almost like they're pulling up the drawbridge. They pulled in all their assets to be pulled in by the 20th of September. They know what's coming. And basically, um, you know, the the most unreported story of 2015 was um, that in the last week of September in uh, 2015, Pope Francis met President Obama to make his keynote speech to the UN General, General Assembly on the future of the world and to unveil Agenda 2030. Um, so it, it's, he's, he's effectively making the Catholic Church the UN servant on Earth. I mean, they they are totally beholden to the United Nations in pushing this agenda forward. Um, and of course, a lot of the Catholic countries thought, "Oh, this is this is amazing. This is must be good." Uh, they they've got that sort of Catholic thing going there, so they think that because the Pope's endorsed it, it must be it must be good for humanity. Yes. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't believe that, that Pope Francis is unaware of the agenda, personally. Yeah. I might be wrong, but he, I personally I don't think he is unaware.
0: Uh, well, we're talking about the Pope, and to make sure everything's fair and above board, I'm going to say many years ago I gave a talk in Ireland and I, I was asked whether I was a Catholic or a Protestant, and I said, I think I would have to say I'm a pro, uh, Protestant. Uh, I was then asked what I thought of the Pope and I said well I don't think the Pope is a particularly nice person I don't think the agenda at high level is an agenda which is ultimately going to help mankind I was in a big hall and there was quite a reasonable audience and I can still remember the hush that descended over the audience and you could feel a palpable tension in the air and uh, That was because principally the audience was Catholic and I was I was in Southern Ireland and I said but before you judge me too harshly let me tell you I am very very sure that the Church of England is run by Satanists and there was an immediate lifting of the mood in the hall and uh, Mm. very interesting that after I'd given my talk I I was surrounded by quite a few people and we had a very interesting discussion about uh, this aspect, I'm going to say, of religion. Now, we're not going to talk about religion um, in this discussion, but you've, you've brought in the Pope and you're saying you don't get warm feelings for what's happening at high level in the Vatican in relation to these plans. But of course, we've had exactly the same type of input from the Church of England, uh, where we've had the highest levels, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Uh, mixing with Christine Lagarde and the Bank of England with glasses of champagne in their hands and uh, also the UK column was able to expose uh, I'm going to say about a year ago probably that the Church of England had been working with global bankers uh, in order to assemble a, a fund of some if I remember correctly 10 trillion but I think it was more than 10 trillion uh, pounds which was going to be used to uh, push the global green agenda and our point in reporting this was that it was fascinating at a time when people couldn't feed themselves in uk let alone the rest of the world that the leader of the church of england would be mixing and socializing with high-level bankers not to solve mm. the hunger on his doorstep or on their doorstep but to progress these globalist plans, which clearly, to my mind, linked into the Agenda 2030, which you're describing.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Sandy, absolutely brilliant uh, introduction to this subject. And of course, as always, we have to watch the clock. Um, I I think you've covered so much material. I, I, I have so many questions still to ask you. How would you feel about making this into a two part interview? Would you be able to give us some time uh, maybe in a few days and we'll record a part two? Is that possible?
1: Absolutely. No, I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. So that we can get it all together because it goes further, doesn't it? And we need to wrap it up in one, you know, in two, maybe two parts. That'd be fantastic.
0: Yeah. Well, we've given a little snapshot CV really of uh, Agenda 2030, and we don't want to spoil it by rushing because we're clock watching. So I think that would be fascinating. And so I'm going to say to our viewers and listeners, I very much hope you've enjoyed this first part of Agenda 2030 uh, with Sandy Adams. And she's agreed on camera, so you can't get away from it, Sandy. You've agreed on camera to come back, Uh, but we will do a part two. And we will drill down into the detail uh, uh, around this plan and what it really means for all of us on the planet. So, Sandy, I'm going to say to you, thank you very, very much for joining us this morning. I look forward to you coming back.
1: And thank you so much for, for having me on. Thank you.
0: Okay. wonderful.